Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Just days ago, the cable news channels were working overtime on a particular story. This week, a team of scientists at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research made an alarming discovery. We have some breaking and rather upsetting news in our health lead, a startling announcement by the Centers for Disease Control. Researchers announcing that a long-dreaded superbug has appeared in the United States for the first time ever. The strain is resistant to a so-called last resort antibiotic. And the big concern is that we're one step away from having untreatable bacterial infections. It's the first time a particular strain of bacteria has been found in the U.S. A Pennsylvania woman was seeking treatment for a UTI. Researchers discovered she carries a type of E. coli bacteria that has a gene resistant to the antibiotic of last resort called colistin. What does that mean for us? Researchers have long warned us about the dangers when antibiotics are used unnecessarily, such as when we aren't feeling well or when the food industry feeds them regularly to livestock. Today, where we live, we talk with medical professionals and researchers about antibiotics and what would happen if the drug-resistant bacteria spreads. How did you react to the news? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. To get perspective on this news, we have an expert in studio, Dr. Nicholas Bennett, Medical Director of Infectious Diseases and Immunology at Connecticut Children's Medical Center. Hi, Dr. Bennett. Hello. <clears throat> Good morning, Lucy. So first off, how was this story um, when it broke? Has it been covered accurately since the CDC made this announcement? Well, yes and no. Um, <clears throat> it depends uh, which sources you read. And, and what you said is, is completely accurate. This was a woman yes. who, was, yes, <laughs> who was treated for a urinary tract infection. She was found to have an E. coli, uh, which is very common. It's the most common cause of UTIs. And she actually had some resistance already present. Um, she, her E. coli had a, had a resistance gene called an ESBL, which is an extended spectrum beta-lactamase. So it already had a few resistance genes, but it was also resistant to this antibiotic colistin. Now, actually, that's not that new. Um, those of us who've worked in um, antibiotic uh, infectious disease treatments and in pharmacy know that there are colistin-resistant strains out there. Um, but what was unusual about this particular bug was how it, it got resistant. And it contains a gene called MCR1, um, which is a colistin-resistance gene. And this is the first time that that particular gene has been found in a person in the United States. Now, that's a lot of caveats mm -hmm. because it is not a new gene either. Um, it has been reported in Canada. It's been reported in Europe. It's been reported all over the world in different settings, and some of that we'll get to in, in a little bit. But the, it, accurately enough, it was the first time that this particular gene has been reported in the U.S. Um, some of the uh, outlets reported it as, as a, a superbug, a bug that really was untreatable, and that doesn't seem to be the case. I mean, if you have an ESBL and you have colistin resistance, there's plenty of other chinks in the armor that you can use to, to kill this infection. Um, so I don't think it was an untreatable infection, but it raises the specter of what might happen if this gene were to spread. 
So we keep hearing the word colistin, um, the antibiotic of last resort. Mm -hmm. Tell me about this drug, how it's been mm -hmm. used, um, and again, how this particular gene um, is resistant to this particular drug. Okay. So colistin is an old drug. It's from the 1960s or, or before. The last time we really used it in any real way was in the 60s. Um, it's a, a cationic detergent. It sounds nasty. Um, what it basically does, it binds to the bacterial cell membranes of some bacteria, not all of them, uh, just a few strains, and literally blows holes in the outer membrane. Um, unfortunately, it also causes issues with uh, kidney toxicity and nerve toxicity, and it kind of fell out of favor because of these issues. And other antibiotics that we've used um, and developed um, you know, in, in the last half decade or so are much safer, they're, they cover the same kinds of infections. Um, so there really was no need to use colistin um, or antibiotics like it, and so it kind of fell out of favor. Um, it has been used in, in you know, on drugs like it in other settings. Um, you might find it in eardrops, and some eardrops have a, a, a polymyxin-type antibiotic, which is where colistin is based. Um, and also it found a role in animal feed and treatment of animals. So that's kind of where this resistance probably came from. Do we know yet, um, so this Pennsylvania woman who was found to have this particular bacteria with this gene resistant to colistin, do we know how she got it? I don't think it's really clear how she in particular got it. Um, what is clear is that the, the resistance gene itself may be actually the bigger problem than the infection. Um, and it's, it's the way that the resistance gene is spread. So <clears throat> the analogy I'm going to use is one that we're probably all familiar with, and that's smartphones, all right? So we all have DNA inside us. Um, we have chromosomes, and so do bacteria. We have 23 pairs. Bacteria have one. They're not very good. At, they don't have a very uh, mature operating system, but they have a chromosome. Now, the chromosome gives the bacteria some ability to resist infection or antibiotics and, and virus infections and things like that. But you can add apps to the operating system. And these apps come in the form of things called plasmids. Mm -hmm. And they are small, tiny DNA circles that contain a few genes, maybe even just one gene, but sometimes a few genes. And these plasmids can transmit antibiotic resistance. So you can install an app into a smartphone, and you can install a plasmid into a bacteria. And you can make a bacteria that is not drug resistant instantly drug resistant. These plasmids can actually transmit between different strains of bacteria. You don't even have to catch the same infection. You just have to, unfortunately, have the same plasmid present in the uh, infection that you may have. So this woman had an E. coli, mm -hmm. but there's no reason why the plasmid couldn't be transmitted to a Pseudomonas or an Acinetobacter or some other more difficult infection to treat. And then we really would have a true multi-drug resistant infection. And that is the problem here. The problem is not colistin resistance. We've seen that. Mm -hmm. The problem is the context in which this colistin resistance is, is, a, is appearing and, and is growing. Mm -hmm. So how can this be passed to person to person? I mean, I, I think I had, I had heard that this was first found in China, this mm -hmm. particular gene. So this is first found in 2015, um, and again, interesting enough, it was also E. coli strains that were found to be colistin resistant. And the researchers went back and asked the question, well, why are they resistant? That's the most important question to always ask, why? So they asked, why are these bugs resistant? And they found that it was a new gene at the time, this MCR1. But then they did something cleverer, um, which the researchers in China did, and researchers in Europe have done the same thing. And they went back in time and looked through stored isolates of bacteria that they had from animals, basically, 
um, because a lot of countries, and the U.S. does this too, they monitor resistance in, in bacterial strains found in animals. And they found that there was colistin resistance present uh, going back five or ten years, and that it was the same gene, although in much lower numbers. And there was, there's been a dramatic explosion in the prevalence, the amount of this gene present in the last five years, from, say, 2011 onwards, um, up until the point where it was really first discovered in 2015. And, and now we're seeing reports in people, and there's been reports in Europe, there's been reports in Canada, and now we have it in the United States, and it's really not surprising. Um, so it, you don't have to be directly exposed necessarily to the same E. coli that was found in China, but the plasmid could have been transmitted, and plasmids are relatively stable. Um, you, you can't kill them, you can't destroy them in the same way as you can kill a bacteria, and so they're much harder to, to eradicate. Um, there's been plenty of studies looking at uh, transmission of resistance in farmers from livestock, uh, who have resistant infections, and initial studies showed no link between the bacteria the chickens had and the bacteria that were present in the farmers. Um, and that's because they were looking at the chromosomes. They were looking at the, the strains of bacteria that were being transmitted between the chickens and the farmers and the farm workers. They didn't find a link. They went back and looked at the plasmids and found there was the link. The link was not the bacteria. It was not the infections. It was the apps that were being installed into the smartphones, into the bacteria, and that, that worries me a lot more. These plasmids can be transmitted around in a much more stable way on surfaces, um, on food products, uh, uncooked properly. You can denature DNA if you cook it well enough. Um, and yeah, there was even one report I found looking at house, house flies on farms, and they found that the resistance genes from the chicken poo were in the flies that were found in the farmhouse kitchen. Um, so this is a potentially a, a real problem, and what this case shows us is it's, it's more than a potential problem. It is a real problem. Th these plasmids can be transmitted around and can cause issues. So I, I was reading about other superbugs mm -hmm. um, in this country, something, the acronym was CRE, mm -hmm. and the potential for this particular bacteria, the gene, to mutate onto um, the, the CRE, mm -hmm. um, and that would create this deadly, true superbug. Is, right. That's the danger. <clears throat> that's Can you explain exact, that? Okay. Yeah, that's exactly it. So the CRE are the carbapenem-resistant enterobacteriaceae. So it's a very long name. That's why we call them CREs. Um, the carbapenems are a class of drug. They're, they're like a super penicillin. Okay? They have the same core uh, uh, functional component, but they have much broader spectrum. So penicillin is good at killing strep infections, mm -hmm. and that's about it. Uh, <laughs> these days, syphilis. Syphilis and strep. Um, but the other antibiotic classes like cephalosporins and carbapenems can kill other things like E. coli and staph infections and acinetobacter. Some of the really nasty stuff that, that can cause um, difficult-to-treat infections in the hospital, in people with immune compromise, surgical site infections, uh, kids with cystic fibrosis. So the carbapenems have been a really important group of antibiotics. Well, of course, as you use them, resistance occurs, and there's resistance in various different ways. You can have enzymes that destroy the bacteria. The bacteria can find ways to pump the antibiotic out of the cell so it no longer works. They're quite smart little buggers. <laughs> and so the problem is, um, what do you do when you have a carbapenem resistance gene? Because almost by definition, if you've lost your carbapenems, you've lost your cephalosporins, you've lost your penicillins. Um, you might have some fluoroquinolone uh, activity. But again, a lot of the carbapenem genes are on plasmids, and they transmit quinolone resistance as well. But don't worry. We have colistin. 
Callisten's our backup plan, and it just so happens that most of the strains that can carry carbapenem resistance are sensitive to callistin. And so we have dragged callistin out, out of the dusty bottom drawer of the pharmacy when we've needed to treat these nasty infections. And we don't worry so much about the toxicity because you're saving lives. So the problem then occurs if you, on top of installing the app for carbapenem resistance, you install the app for callistin resistance in the same bacteria. That is totally possible. It will happen. I can tell you it will happen. I can't tell you when, but it's almost an inevitability that something like this sooner or later is potentially going to happen. We're talking with Dr. Nicholas Bennett, Medical Director of Infectious Diseases and Immunology at Connecticut Children's Medical Center, about the potential for a superbug that's resistant to the antibiotic of last resort, this colistin. Um, if you have a question for Dr. Bennett, 860-275-7266. You can also email us, uh, where we live, at wmpr.org. So I'm, I'm curious, when people are listening to this, we don't want to get them lost in the science um, of all of this in terms of the bacteria and how it can mutate and what this means if we don't have the proper drug to fight this, uh, this deadly um, infection. Uh, but for us in Connecticut, I mean, how does this impact us? That's a really tough question. <laughs> um, I think a lot of us are working towards the same goal anyway. In fact, just, just recently, a few weeks ago, a, a friend and colleague of mine, Mike Naylor at um, Hartford Hospital, is a pharmacist there, and, and he sent me an article he, he'd written with a few other authors on the use of antibiotics in farming and the risks to human health. And there's a, a well-written short little segment on this same gene, this, this MCR1, mm -hmm. and what it might mean. Um, with the, you know, leaving it hanging, you know, this is eventually going to come here. Well, of course, a few weeks later, it, it did. Um, so there, there are people, Michael Kilty at UConn, he's a, he's a farmer. He's, he's very um, passionate about um, reducing antibiotic use in livestock. I think every uh, infectious disease doctor in the country is interested in, in doing this as, as much as they can in uh, human health care. But I'm a, not just an infectious disease doctor, I'm a pediatric infectious disease doctor. And looking at the, the scope of usage that I can change in my practice and in my hospital, uh, it is a tiny fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the total antibiotic use that uh, we are exposed to as a, as a society. Um, because to start with, 80% by tonnage, 80% is not even in humans. Uh, and mo most of it's in the outpatient world and most of it's in adults, not kids. So I'm, you know, I'm, not just, um, I'm not just playing with ice cream. I'm like playing with the, the stem on the cherry on the top of the ice cream, and it's not really changing much of anything. Yeah. Um, but this is what we're going to change. So we're going to change things by making people aware of the risks of antibiotic use in the broader picture, I think. Before we take a break, I wanted to just go back a little bit to this particular woman that was found to have this E. coli bacteria. Um, it's not the bacteria that causes diarrhea. This is something that there's no symptom if you carry it in your gut, right? So, yeah, there's lots of different E. coli strains. <clears throat> the most common cause of traveler's diarrhea is E. coli. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the common causes of meningitis in babies is E. coli, strangely enough. Mm -hmm. And the most common cause of UTI, urinary tract infection, is E. coli. So there's lots, it, lots of different strains um, and what's even more confusing is that the resistance patterns don't necessarily match the strain um, because, this, again, the species of bacteria and the, and the strain of E. coli is decided by the chromosome, by the operating system, but the resistance pattern is often decided more so by the apps that are installed. And so that's what makes my job really interesting is someone can say, I've got a pseudomonas infection, and I'm like, that's great, but it doesn't necessarily tell me what drug I need to use to treat you with. You've got to know a little bit more about the, uh, the bacteria. 
Uh, one more question. If you're relatively healthy, um, you have rarely taken antibiotics, is this something that a, a, a person like that could, could worry about? I think worry is an interesting word. It's something that I think we have to consider uh, these days. And I think a few years ago, if you'd asked me that question, I would say no. <clears throat> Most uh, antibiotic-resistant bacteria uh, historically have been found in the healthcare setting, either from hospitals, um, from people who have lots of exposure to antibiotics because they're very sick, um, from long-term care facilities. These are places where we know drug resistance is bred. However, in, in recent years, we've seen a, an increase in even slightly resistant infections like this woman's E. coli because she had an ESBL, this extended-spectrum beta-lactamase there. This is a gene that really wasn't thought to be a really big deal uh, in the community for a while, and now we're seeing more and more of it. And I've even seen some babies come in with their first ever infection, first ever urinary tract infection as a newborn. Common problem, not usually a big deal. Um, and they're infected with a strain of E. coli or another bacteria that is so resistant that I can't even send them home on an oral antibiotic because I have no options left. All the oral antibiotics are resistant. And so I'm forced to treat this baby with an intravenous antibiotic when otherwise I wouldn't necessarily need to do that. And we're seeing that not just here, but nationally. When you, when you talk to our colleagues and everyone's having the same issue. So we're seeing more and more of these things in the community now. And the concern is if we start to see more resistant organisms, not just more as in more frequent, but greater resistance levels, um, we are going to have problems where people are going to have relatively mild infections where normally you could pop an oral antibiotic and be done in a few days, and the doctor's going to have to say to them, listen, I'm going to have to hospitalize you and put you on an IV for a few days because I've got no choices left. And that's where we're going to find ourselves in, in a short time, I think, because we're already seeing it. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're going to take a short break, and we'll come back and take your phone calls and questions, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. By now, you've heard or read the news reports. Researchers have discovered a new strain of bacteria in the U.S. that has a gene resistant to colistin, the antibiotic of last resort. In studio with me is Dr. Nicholas Bennett, Medical Director of Infectious Diseases and Immunology at Connecticut Children's Medical Center. He says what makes this bacteria dangerous is that the gene that makes it resistant to the powerful antibiotic colistin could mutate to other bacteria with the potential to create a true superbug that no available antibiotic can defeat. So, Dr. Bennett, we alluded to this a little bit earlier in the show about how we got to this point, and you used the statistic, I think, um, and I've also read this, that 80% of antibiotics in the U.S. are in our livestock. Right, <clears throat> and that, that's based on a sheer tonnage of, of usage. Um, and that's been a statistic that's really hard to pin down because in, until recently, people haven't even been looking at how much is being used. No one's been really monitoring it. And these are some of the changes that um, actually President Obama had, had pushed through with his last set of executive orders a few, a few year or two ago, um, one of which was to try and get a handle on how much usage is out there in livestock, recognizing that um, we don't have a good idea. Um, what was discovered back in the 50s was that if you add a little bit of sousson of antibiotics to animal feed, the animals grow bigger and they grow um, more consistently and more predictably. And from the uh, and there was actually a recommendation to put antibiotics in, in livestock feed. Um, and from the livestock side of things, it made perfect sense. Um, if, until this day, we still don't know why that happens, why they 
do better? Is it because we change the gut flora? Is it because we're changing the way that the food is processed inside the um, animals? We don't know, but it works. However, the problem is that you then promote resistant organisms because the doses that are used in animal feed um, and uh, prophylactically, preventatively in, in animals are low doses, and often they're diluted, and they're diluted because um, it's cheaper to, to use low doses. Um, you're not trying to treat an infection. The trouble is the low doses damage the bacteria without really killing them, and, and it allows the bacteria a little bit of room, a little bit of time to develop these resistance mechanisms. And then once you have a resistant organism, all bets are off. It'll outgrow its sensitive competition and become the dominant organism. So you're then playing catch up, trying to chase it. And we've seen this happen globally, all over the world. We know that drug resistance uh, organisms have been found in farm animals, in, uh, in, in chickens, in pigs, in cattle. Um, and so it's not a new phenomenon. Um, we can, we, what people have tried to do uh, since the 70s even, the FDA here has uh, tried to um, advise people, encourage the industry to use less antibiotics. Um, they haven't had any teeth, unfortunately. There's no enforcement. A lot of it's been voluntary. Um, there have been some uh, successes and some gains in that, but nothing uh, compared to some of the efforts that have been made in places like Europe or some of the European countries have just outright banned the use of certain antibiotics based on fairly clear links to specific resistant organisms. Um, so we were really playing catch up once again in terms of trying to uh, prevent this, this problem. Um, Foodborne outbreaks uh, of, of infection have been reported where the organisms are drug resistant, multi-drug resistant, uh, meaning there's m multiple classes of antibiotics that are out of, out of the question, you can't use them. Um, and again, these are worldwide, and these are a threat to the U.S. So we know that the the use of antibiotics in animals is is linked strongly to the development of resistance in animals. We know that uh, drug-resistant uh, infections in animals can be transmitted to people. Uh, you can tell that from looking at the farm workers. You can tell that from looking at foodborne outbreaks. Um, and, and now we're seeing it in, in the larger population. And, uh, and genes like MCR1 are a real issue because uh, for two reasons. One... They are transmissible, and they can transmit between strains. But two, this is a direct result of the antibiotic use in animals. We really can't blame, for once, we can't blame the doctors for the rise of antibiotic resistance in this context. I mean, yes, we can blame doctors for things like MRSA, MRSA. That was discovered as a result of the use of uh, staphylococcal penicillins, and the staph mutated around it. Um, and vancomycin-resistant enterococcus, to some extent, that is a, a healthcare-developed infection. Sure, okay, you know, mea culpa for that. But colistin resistance is, is like, no, uh, this particular gene is, is just animal uh, antibiotic use, really. Um, will we promote that in the healthcare setting through the use of colistin? Almost certainly. You can't avoid it. If you're, if you're having to use colistin in the right context to save people's lives with other infections, if that gene is present, you will select for it. You, if it gets into an organism uh, th that you're trying to kill with colistin, then of course that organism won't die, and it will then grow on, grow up, and, and become a, a real infection and, and cause a problem potentially spread 
Um, so it, as I said earlier, it's, it's not a case of if, it's a case of when this is going to happen. We're going to be dodging bullets and being extremely careful mm-hmm. about how we manage this. But Do you think at this point, um, since the CDC rang the alarm bell mm-hmm. last week, that um, our federal agencies will take it seriously, not just a little pat on the back, a little advice to the food industry that now's the time to curb this? Uh, I don't know. Um, I would have said the same thing should have happened with ESBLs when they showed up, and it should have happened with CREs, uh, with carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteriaceae. And, uh, these things were new reports a few years ago, and, and I wouldn't say they're commonplace, but they're problematic, and we've, we've all seen them. Um, so I, I think perhaps it'll be a bit of a wake-up call, and, and to some extent, you know, we're saying, I told you so, you know, we knew this was going to happen, and, and here it is. It, it's a real problem. And it hasn't just become a problem in terms of losing ciprofloxacin, which is kind of an annoying thing. It's like we've lost colistin. So you're going to affect the the most vulnerable patients, those who have multidrug-resistant organisms, those who are already pretty sick. And we can't use the one drug we had left to, to help them out. So we can be imaginative. We can try higher doses. We can try combination therapies. Um, but ultimately, there's only so many antibiotics we have available right now. And on that point, um, we are hearing from lawmakers that now's the time to work on investing and developing new antibiotics. I wanted to bring into the conversation U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal. Welcome to Where We Live, Senator Blumenthal. Wonderful to be with you. Thank you for having me. So first off, your reaction to news last week that this uh, bacteria discovered in the U.S. with this gene that could ha- bring the potential of a superbug to this country? First, we ought to avoid panicking because this superbug was found in the urine of a Pennsylvania woman without any detrimental effect to her. But certainly we should be alarmed that this strain of E. coli is now present in people in this country. It was found formerly in Europe and in China, but now for the first time, a strain of E. coli resistant to colostin has been found here, which emphasized the importance of a effort that I have been trying to advance almost since the first days that I arrived in the United States Senate, and that is to accelerate the production of new antibiotics to deal with the superbugs. And they're called superbugs because they are resistant to present antibiotics. And all the reasons that have been given so eloquently and powerfully for stopping the overuse or excessive prescription of antibiotics still hold true. But we need to speed the approval within the FDA of new antibiotics that are developed against these superbugs. And that's the purpose of the new law that I have introduced. It's bipartisan. It's an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act. My partner in this effort is Orrin Hatch of Utah, a Republican colleague. It's also supported by Michael Bennett of Colorado, a Democratic uh, friend and colleague. And we introduced it essentially to create a new drug approval pathway to streamline access and encourage innovation and development of potentially life-saving antibiotics drugs for patients, particularly veterans and service members who have encountered this kind of bacteria, antibiotic-resistant superbugs while overseas. The others who are particularly vulnerable to them 
as you might expect, are elderly, preterm infants, transplant patients. Those populations are particularly vulnerable, but the point is that we need a new administrative or pathway process to reduce the cost and the time taken to approve these new drugs within the Food and Drug Administration. Senator Blumenthal, I read that um, there have been less than 10 new antibiotics that have come to the market since 2000. What are the barriers to that? Is it not lucrative to the pharmaceutical companies to, to work on this? I can't speak to the motives of the pharmaceutical drug companies, but just to be very blunt, if you are infected with one of the diseases caused by these bacteria, you take a term or a series of doses of the antibiotics, and then you're done. So people who are treated effectively maybe take it for a limited period of time. It's not like cholesterol drugs that are taken for a lifetime. And therefore, these antibiotics tend to be perhaps less profitable to the pharmaceutical drug companies. But also, there are the normal barriers to research and development of new drugs. The companies will tell you very powerfully about the costs that they incur when they try numerous different drugs. Few of them prove effective. They have to go down many blind alleys at great cost. And so that's another barrier. And of course, uh, superbugs have received very little attention. There tend to be headlines, stories, and then attention is diverted elsewhere. And yet, uh, I, I am astonished by the number of people who fall victim to these drugs. Two million Americans suffer from serious antibiotic-resistant infections every year, and 14,000 people die each year in the United States as a result of these infections. They cause an additional 8 million hospital days and costs in excess of $20 billion to the U.S. healthcare system. We're talking about serious money and expenses to our healthcare system, which could be prevented if we spend the money, I should say invest the money, mm -hmm. on dealing with the deadliest drug-resistant superbugs now in the United States. Senator Blumenthal, um, Dr. Nicholas Bennett from Connecticut Children's Medical Center is in studio with me. He's medical director of infectious diseases and immunology. Uh, Dr. Bennett, talk about um, the lack of, of new antibiotics on the market and what Senator Blumenthal was talking about in terms of getting companies interested, incentivized uh, to develop and do the research. <clears throat> yeah, well, Senator Blumenthal hit the nail on the head in so many ways. He's built a small shed here. Um, <laughs> he's absolutely right. I mean, the actual report is nothing to panic about, but it's something to worry about. Um, I'd be more panicked if, if there really was, a, you know, this MCR1 in a CRE and it was spreading everywhere. That's a problem. You also raised an important point about um, the, the soldiers and, and the, uh, the armed forces. Um, they were some of the groups who were most severely affected by one of these CREs, a horrible Acinetobacter bamenii infection um, that they picked up overseas in the Gulf. Um, in which we had to use drugs like colistin for because nothing else is left. So you take that off the table and you really in, impact a huge swathe of, of, of life you, um, in, in terms of uh, combat forces. So there's that, that aspect to it. And then to circle back and talk about the uh, development, um, we've re kind of reached an impasse with the antibiotics. We, of, the, of the drugs that have been approved in the last few years, many of them are what I call me-too drugs, where you have a drug, 
and a company makes a version of it and says, me too, I've got one just like it. I've got another one and maybe it has slightly different pharmacokinetics and maybe you dose it once a day or once a week instead of every three or four hours. But uh, they're not working any differently. Um, so if you have a resistant infection that's resistant to that class of antibiotics, that drug isn't going to help you. We need new classes, and that needs research. That's not paying a company to, de to develop and, and market and study an, a new drug. It's actually paying them to make a new drug. Um, and a lot of that work isn't even done in pharmaceutical companies. It is actually done in, uh, in the acad academia, in the academic world, um, and where, you know, where research is done for the heck of it. Uh, and, and then some of the, uh, the new developments may be bought up and developed in, in, in partnership or, or solely by uh, an, um, uh, an industry partner. Um, and that's kind of often the way that these things get done is you, uh, you have someone inventing something and then it gets developed and, and bought up elsewhere um, if, if the university itself doesn't develop it. That's another pipeline that people have used. Um, but we need new ideas. Um, we basically can boil down... Uh, our antibiotic treatments to, uh, to either you starve the bacteria, you, you poison them, or you blow them open. Uh, you burst the cell wall. And those are the three ways in which we kill bacteria. And we haven't changed <laughs> in decades. Um, we need something different. We need a new mechanism in which we can attack the bacteria without being toxic to our own cells. I mean, there's a lot of overlap, but there's a lot of stuff that bacteria do uniquely. And we have to promote that kind of out-of-the-box thinking um, you can throw money at the, at the companies, pharmaceutical companies, to help them get through clinical trials, which are incredibly expensive and difficult. And, and as uh, Senator Blumenthal alluded to, um, you can have five drugs through the pipeline, only one of which may even make it to market. Um, so there's that difficulty of, of, of recouping the costs that you've spent on the other four uh, you know, studies and, and development pipelines. But ultimately, you still need someone to come up with that product. You, you need uh, to to help people, to pay the people, to help them get the resources to invent and develop and purify agents that are going to work in a totally different way than the drugs that we've had to date. Uh, Senator Blumenthal, before we let you go, again, your legislation would encourage uh, innovation and antibiotic research and development. But on the other side of the coin, when we hear about 80% of antibiotics used in this country are in our livestock, in our food supply, what is the federal government doing about that? Very, very profoundly important question. And I raised it at the very start of what I said when I referred to excessive prescription of antibiotics and overuse of them in our food production system. People should know that antibiotics are routinely administered to livestock even before they may have an infection. They're used as a kind of uh, prophylactic measure. That practice simply encourages the bacteria to develop and evolve. You know, we live in a system of survival of the fittest, eventually these bacteria are developing in ways to resist those antibiotics. And it's almost like we have an experiment in how to foster antibiotic resistant bacteria in the way we administer it to livestock. So the simple answer to your question is not enough. The federal government is doing not enough to discourage overuse of antibiotics, but also among our practicing physicians, and we have some of the most enlightened public health advocates, including uh, 
some on your show right now who talk about doctors who also routinely use these antibiotics when they are unnecessary. And part of it is the patients who demand it. I'm a patient, and when our kids got sick, my first expectation was, well, you know, don't they need antibiotics? And of course, uh, prescribing physicians often yield to that request implicit on the part of their patients, not my doctor, but others do. Mm -hmm. And so it's a change of culture that has to happen. It's not new laws alone. It's a change of culture. Just because we have the antibiotics doesn't mean we should use them. Why are they used? Because we have them. And we need to recognize the downsides of the overuse or unnecessary prescriptions as well as in our food supply chain. And that change in culture can't be achieved by law. I want to emphasize one other point. When we streamline approval in the FDA of these new drugs, in no way should we compromise the standards of safety and effectiveness. It's simply putting them on a faster track, not making the track any less arduous or demanding in terms of health or safety. Mm -hmm. And a final point, you know, when you asked uh, what are the excuses given by the drug companies or the reasons for their failure to develop new drugs, uh, often they'll cite the difficulty of the approval process in the FDA. Let's eliminate that excuse or reason, depending on how you view it, and give them, in effect, what they are asking to be done, and do it in a bipartisan way. Senator Hatch of Utah and I have an amendment which we will be pushing hard to be adopted. It's called the PATH Act. It builds on a measure that I introduced before called the GAIN Act, same kinds of objectives, and we hope it will pass, but the change in culture has to be achieved by all of us recognizing what the problem is. All right, Senator Blumenthal, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining Where We Live. Thank you. And when we get back from a break, we're going to hear more about what the academic world is doing on a global scale uh, on research for antibiotics and the resistance around us. This is Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about a new drug-resistant bacteria found in the U.S. If it were to mutate with other deadly bacteria, a true superbug could develop, ending the effectiveness of the antibiotics we currently have. So the question is, what's happening in the research community to develop new antibiotics? Joining us by phone now is Erica Kurt. She's president and CEO of the Small World Initiative. It's a program that works with students on antibiotic resistance research globally. Hi, Erica. Thanks for coming on where we live. Thank you so much for inviting me on your show to discuss this important issue. We only have about 15 minutes. So first, where did this idea for the initiative come from? And how are these researchers working on this antibiotic resistant problem? Uh, So the program was actually started at Yale University in 2012 by Joe Handelsman, who is the current Associate Director of Science at the White House. And her goal was to encourage students to pursue careers in science while addressing the antibiotic crisis. In essence, the program uh, centers around an introductory biology course in which students perform hands-on field and laboratory research on soil samples in the hunt for new antibiotics. And the reason that this is particularly relevant is because most antibiotics and most uh, pharmaceutical drugs in general 
come from soil bacteria uh, or fungi. And so this really unique approach provides a platform to replenish the antibiotic pipeline by having thousands of students from all over the world identify uh, suitable candidates for testing. And uh, we currently have the program in 108 schools uh, across 33 U.S. states, Puerto Rico, and eight additional countries. And uh, we've impacted more than 8,000 students so far. So, Erica, when the news of this new bacteria, this gene that's resistant to colistin, comes out, you know, how does that put an, uh, an urgency on the work that's being done? Uh, well, that news is actually particularly urgent because that specific gene uh, can uh, change, can transmit from one bacterium to another bacterium really easily. In fact, it only needs to touch another strain of bacteria in order to um, transfer that new gene. So that's one of the reasons why it's, why it's so particularly important right now and kind of accelerating this this antibiotic resistant uh, crisis. Um, so, so that that's really a call to arms of you know calling together you know thousands of people to change their practices and students uh, and researchers around the world to come up with innovative solutions for this problem. Uh, because this is a global approach, you know, what countries out there are doing a better job than the U.S.? Uh, I would say that uh, the Scandinavian countries have some good approaches right now in terms of really uh, restricting the use of antibiotics in animal feed, uh, as uh, Dr. Bennett was mentioning, and also uh, making sure that antibiotics are only prescribed when necessary to humans. Right now in the United States, at least one in three prescriptions in humans are are given unnecessarily. So that means it's either given to somebody who has a virus, and uh, antibiotics cannot treat viruses. They can only treat bacterial infections, or they're given to uh, people that have a minor infection that they can um, recover from on their own. Um, I don't don't know if you heard Senator Blumenthal's point before the break about how we need a change in culture. So not only with the doctor prescribing that antibiotic, but the patient who hasn't been feeling well and who really thinks that an antibiotic is going to help them, that may not be the case. I wanted to go over to Dr. Bennett now. I read something about something called rapid tests that can identify um, virus versus bacteria. So it will help doctors um, not just depend on their clinical judgment of what they can do or what they can give to their patient to make them feel better. Right. Um, and in fact, I've just tweeted out a, a cartoon that I made a couple of years ago of Batman slapping Robin as Robin says, I need antibiotics for my cold. And Batman slaps him and says, it's a virus. <laughs> so that's exactly right. Um, uh, it's the, the rapid testing has is, is, is been around for a while. Um, it's very Im- important, but it has to be not just utilized, but acted upon. Um, so it's been shown that if you introduce rapid testing to, say, a hospital environment or an ER or, or an urgent care or something like that, you don't actually see a change in antibiotic prescribing unless you also have a robust program in place to educate and help the practitioners use that information to make decisions. Um, you need a bit of both. You need good antimicrobial stewardship and you need good testing. But the testing alone is, is actually has, doesn't seem to change practice. You need a little bit of both. Um, but it definitely has the potential to do so. Um, it is difficult sometimes to know whether, say, a pneumonia is viral or bacterial. But if, if you've got a, a positive test for rhinovirus, you may feel more comfortable not prescribing an antibiotic and saying, yeah, you've got pneumonia, but it's viral. It's not going to be a big problem. 
um, you know, come back if, and then give some safety net guidelines for when you really would worry about needing antibiotics, if, if the fevers get higher, if the cough gets worse, things like that. There's an email from Terry. Could you discuss the research into the use of bacteriophages to combat bacteria which are drug resistant? Did oh, I say that cool. right? Yeah. <laughs> so bacteriophages are, ba are viruses. So we've been talking about bacteriophages since I was in medical school, and they were going to be the next big thing mm -hmm. where you didn't need antibiotics. You literally had a smart bullet. You had a virus that was um, supposed to be uh, specific for a strain of bacteria, and, of course, bacteriophages don't affect mammalian or human cells. So you could infect someone with this virus, and all it would do would be to kill the infection. And we've known about bacteriophages for decades, and we still don't have a bacteriophage treatment. Um, I, I think there's issues with um, kind of adapting them for, for usage and, and making them practical. Um, it's a really nice approach, though. If, if you think about it, if you can get it to work, um, it really would be a nice way of um, dealing with the bacteria is to infect them with something that naturally kills them, which are the bacteriophages. Now, chances are you're going to end up getting resistance to those too in a totally different way. Bacteria can become resistant to phages in the same way as they can become resistant to antibiotics. And as we just heard, most antibiotics are actually found in bacteria, in, in fungi and in bacteria in the soil. They're, that's you know that's the real definition of an antibiotic. Um, is, is a, it's a thing that's made by a, a bacterium to kill other bacteria, as it were. Um, and so we kind of use nature to fight itself. I think it's a lovely idea. Um, I, I really would keep an eye on that kind of research because uh, even you know, decades later, it's still something we, we should be looking at and should be using um, as, as another tool in our arsenal. Um, we have just about five minutes left. I wanted to go back to Erica Kurt, president and CEO of the Small World Initiative. Uh, besides the, doing the research around us in the environment, Erica, what else can the public do to combat antibiotic resistance in, in our daily practices? Well, in addition to coming up with uh, new antibiotics to constantly replenish the pipeline, there are really two other things that the public should uh, focus on. The first is to reduce the spread of infection. So that includes simple things like washing hands with regular soap and water, uh, taking uh, important vaccines, uh, and doing things like that. The second is curbing the excessive and unnecessary use of antibiotics. Uh, so you might think, what can an individual person do? In terms of animal feed, um, you can choose not to buy meat raised with antibiotics. Uh, and you can also... Um, decide that when you go to your doctor that you don't demand uh, an antibiotic and you ask, you know, when should I come back? What symptoms should I look out for to determine uh, when you really need that antibiotic? And Dr. Bennett, I want to go back to you. Um, how much damage are we doing when we put that antibacterial hand sanitizer on every second of the day? Actually, probably not a lot. <clears throat> the sanitizers are alcohol-based. So they, they just damage the outer membrane. Um, they're different than the antimicrobial soaps. Where there have even been reports of resistance developing to some of the antimicrobial soaps. But the hand sanitizer is just it's an alcohol solution. Okay. It, it just dehydrates and damages the cell wall and, and the bacteria diet. It's fantastic. I've got a Another picture I can tweet out of my hands where I, I cultured my fingers after coming off the elevator and then I washed a hand in soap, antibacterial soap and water and then I sterilized my hand, my other hand, in, uh, in alcohol. And the alcohol stuff just kills the bacteria on my, on my skin. Thankfully, it's all skin flora. I didn't grow any multi-drug resistant pseudomonas, but it still it shows how effective the sanitizers really can be. Um, I want to circle back again and mention something about something the public can do. 
and the efforts of a, a local group um, called CONPERG, which is the Connecticut Public Interest Research Group, they have made efforts to um, encourage large purchasers of, of meat products to use antibiotic-free meat. Um, if we can get partners uh, and companies like McDonald's and Subway and KFC and, 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 and Purdue and places like that to promise to not purchase or not use antibiotics in their products, you're talking about an extraordinarily large segment of, of the consumption industry. I mean, we, I mean, we could all go vegan, but frankly, I love my bacon too much, so that's not going to happen for me. But um, if we want to reduce the, uh, the use of antibiotics in, in overall, we can do a little bit ourselves. Of course we can. But, but we can, if we can encourage industry to just not do it as well, and we buy from companies that promise to do that, and we don't buy from companies that do use antibiotics in their products, the great, wonderful market free economy will, will, will change things. Um, and we can flip the, the, uh, the discussion away from antibiotic-free meat is going to be more expensive to actually it's more expensive to use antibiotics because no one's going to want to buy it. Mm -hmm. um, and that, I think, is, is one way in which we can change things. And they have made changes. Uh, so I want to give a shout-out to the folks at Comperg um, because they really made some efforts and, and some big changes in the last year in the industry. Uh, we're almost out of time. Erica, Kurt, I wanted to go back to you. Um, where can people go to learn more about the Small World Initiative? Well, they can visit our website, which is smallworldinitiative.org, and they can learn there how to get involved or even how to uh, apply to become one of our instructors teaching the program. I want to thank Erica Kurt again, President and CEO of the Small World Initiative. Also in studio with me, Dr. Nicholas Bennett, Medical Director of Infectious Diseases and Immunology at Connecticut Children's Medical Center. So we didn't want to scare people today, Dr. Bennett. I think we uh, achieved that. Yeah, don't, pa don't panic, <laughs> but we have to be cautious, and I think we have to watch what we eat. Well, thank you again for coming in. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. You can continue this conversation on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. Yuval Levin argued.